At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. After we've all spent a few days with family and friends, I've got a question that should be fresh on all of your minds. And that is, who is the person in your tribe, in your family, that says the thing that other people might be thinking, but would never say out loud because it could be offensive or off-putting or too socially unacceptable? Tell the person next to you who it is. No shame. Share with them the name. Who is that person in your family? Just call it out. If you can't think of the person right away, that probably means the person is you. (laughs) In my family, it's not just one person, it's every male over 40 years of age and my sister-in-law. So this weekend, my sister-in-law was texting all of us to get a quote or story from each of our kids about their favorite memory from our family reunion that we had this past summer. And it was all cute and fun for a while. Here's what little person said, and another little person said this, and here was their story, and this is that story. But like so many other conversations, this started going sideways with sarcasm because the text thread was mostly with the adults. So my brother, who is the one in our family who does this often, he chimes in after all the cute stories and just drops this on the conversation. My favorite memory was when Aaron, that's our niece's husband, he's a father as well, went on a 20-mile run for five hours and made everyone wait around for family pictures, then got mad at us for thinking he could read a clock and show up on time. After that, you can imagine how the text thread went. A spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving was all around the spirit of the holiday. Jesus had one in his tribe, and we should all thank God for Peter. And the honesty of the scriptures, because Peter is the one so often within the gospels themselves that says the thing or asks the thing that we all are thinking but might not have the impulse or courage to say. And what we learn through his interactions with Jesus is incredibly insightful. But before we get to what Peter asks Jesus, let's remember the conversation. Let me just bring you up to speed on the context. Very important for this morning. This is the final week of our five-week series in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus has been instructing his disciples about how they should relate to one another as part of his kingdom community. This is the conversation where our Savior patiently teaches us how to deal with conflict as citizens of his kingdom. And we all desperately need this series. All of us do. If you are in the room this morning, you need it, I need it, as people, as parents, as kids, as families, as a church, as part of this community and nation. We need the ethic of Christ to revolutionize the way we relate to one another. We constantly need this. 
And as you'd expect, the ethic of Jesus turns the world's way completely on its head. It's like in Lewis Carroll's sequel to Alice in Wonderland. That book was called Through the Looking Glass. And Alice in the story climbs through a mirror into this fantastical world where everything works in reverse. If you wanted to walk towards something, you needed to walk away from it. If you wanted to walk to the left, you needed to walk to the right. And likewise, if you want to walk into peace, if you want your relationships to be full of peace, if you want to walk into peace, then you must learn to walk through conflict. Not around conflict, not over conflict, not under conflict, not in conflict, but learn to walk through conflict. So now that Jesus has communicated that his people walk in humility instead of running after their own significance. That was week one, verses one through six. And he communicated that his people walk with others to build up their faith instead of running towards sin and taking others with them. That was week two in verses seven through nine. That his people walk alongside the hurting and pursue the disciples who wander instead of running away from people in the church family that you don't think you have a responsibility for. That was week three. Uh, So often in the church family, we don't realize the responsibility that God gives us in his word towards one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, part of this local church family. And then last week, Jesus talked about how his people walk towards reconciliation in their relationships instead of running towards gossip and retaliation and self-righteous judgment. Those were verses 15 through 20. So now Jesus presses on one final issue. He saved it for last because it's the cornerstone, it's the linchpin, it's the key, it's the indispensable practice of his people that shapes the entire discussion. It's on this topic of forgiveness. It's a boundless, all-encompassing treatment of forgiveness. Forgiveness related to what we've done, uh, what's been done to me. Forgiveness related to what I've done to others. Forgiveness related to what I hold against myself. And the one who never wronged another, the perfect one, he teaches that God's family forgives as they've been forgiven. Such a simple statement, such a simple truth that God's family forgives as they've been forgiven. But how hard is this to live out? How hard is this to practice when Jesus says, come and follow me? How how well are we? How good are we? How consistent are we at following this command, this instruction? Everything that Jesus said, everything that he's been saying flies in the face of cultural norms. It did then, in his time, it does now. And the norm of this world is to call out the inexcusable sin in others while justifying the inexcusable sin within ourselves. We become masters at that. And when it came to forgiveness, here was the rule that was established by the Jewish rabbis of the first century, those who walked around the nation and taught other disciples within Jesus' time. The rule was this, that God extends forgiveness and withholds his punishment for three offenses, but not for four. So the teaching was, since God keeps score, it's okay for you to keep score too. 
The teaching was based upon an Old Testament prophet named Amos who delivered God's message of judgment to the northern tribes of Israel around 750 BC, just a few decades before they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And listen to what he said. You'll pick up on the pattern quickly. Verse 3 of chapter 1 in the book of Amos, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they had have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. God delivers the same message of judgment to the surrounding enemies of Israel, to the Edomites in verse 11, to the Ammonites in verse 13, to the Moabites in chapter 2, verse 1. And wouldn't it be nice if God would bring down his judgment and destroy our enemy, the Cellulites? Maybe you've heard of them, especially after Thanksgiving. They're always wanting to invade our territory. And God gives the same message to Judah and Israel. The rabbinical application was that God expected his people to follow his pattern and extend forgiveness to others three times, but once they hit number four, game over, vengeance is yours. But does God want us to keep a record of everyone else's wrongs? Does he want us to keep score? There's an issue with the common rabbi's application at the time. The issue is that Amos was using the numbers in a different way. Three sins, it represents fullness and completeness. Four represents overflow, or a sin that is the tipping point of God's judgment. The idea was that three or four were not referring to a specific number of sins. Amos was simply saying that a constant pattern of rebellion had led ultimately to God's judgment, both on the enemies of Israel and Israel themselves. This is just another example then of human beings creating rules upon rules that lead to self-righteousness so that we can say, I'm okay to react this way because you crossed the limit. That's what we like to do in our own moral structures. We like to say, okay, here's the limit. And because this is my arbitrary limit, if you cross over this limit, therefore you are not worthy of receiving any more grace, any more mercy. You now owe me. Now I can hold this against you. Now I can justify holding this debt that you owe me against you. You've wronged me. We have this pattern of creating our own moral compass. And Jesus wants to destroy that and replace it with the morality practiced by citizens in his kingdom. We have this pattern of creating our own solutions and he wants to destroy it and replace it with the solutions practiced by citizens in his kingdom. So what does Peter say? All this background's important, so now you'll more deeply understand verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's the question. As many as seven times? And now you understand the context. He's saying, Jesus, I get it. Here's the application. I'm going to go above and beyond. They say three. I'm saying seven. 
I'm going to take what's expected three times the number of fullness. I'm going to double it and add one and offer forgiveness seven times, not the number of fullness, but a larger number of sacred completion. Lord, is that good enough? Have I gone far enough? That's the question we all ask. Where's your line? Where's your limit? Where now you are able to justify holding on to the offense. I'm glad Peter asked. It's what we might have all been thinking, but he had that impulse to say it out loud. He's saying, Lord, is my standard, is my way, is my metric, is it good enough? Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our tendencies. He knows the pattern established deeply in our being before we were recreated through faith in Christ. And that old pattern was that we wanted to have control. We want to manage ourselves and manage our sin independently of God's rule. So Jesus says back to Peter, verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven interpretation. Jesus is saying, here's the equation in my kingdom. Forgiveness is limitless. That's what he's saying. I want your heart, he's saying, to become like mine. And that means it's not about a number. It's not about keeping score. Now we need to know at this point what Jesus was not saying here. And because all of us walk into this room today with all kinds of different hurts and wounds and experiences, and some of them I know are almost inhumanly terrible. But he's not saying that governments should never punish those who break the law. That's a separate issue. He's not contradicting what he has just said earlier in the chapter about the church's role in judging the brother or sister for unrepentant sin. That's an that's a issue that he uh, talked about previously. He's not contradicting what he just said about God's right to hold people accountable for their rebellion and sin. He's not dismissing God's justice. He's not saying that sin does not have consequences. He is describing what his kingdom is like. And in his kingdom, he says, my family forgives because they have been forgiven. And so now that Jesus has set the standard, he shares a parable, a story, to explain why forgiveness is so necessary for his followers, for you and for me. Look at verse 23. We'll look at scene one. He says, Therefore, my, the, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So in the first scene, we have a king settling his debts. One of his servants owes him 10,000 talents and his wife, his family, his possessions, his own life were basically all forfeit because of that debt. Jesus wasn't wanting us to do the math. He really wasn't. He wasn't wanting us to play around with what's 10,000 talents and what's all that mean and what's that worth. His point was that the debt was insurmountable. But just to help us, I'll do some of the math. 
We'll, we'll talk through it a little bit. A talent is a measurement of weight in gold or silver or copper. And 10,000 talents is equivalent to 220 tons. 220 tons in labs. Do the math. Now, one ton is the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. A denarius is the pay for one full day of work. So 10,000 talents equals 60 million denarii, which you would be able to pay off at right around 164,383 and a half years of work. If you're just curious. Jesus was saying that the servant owed the king, are you ready for the dollar amount? He owed the king a bajillion gazillion dollars. That's how much he owed the king. The point was the debt was infinite. And yet the servant, notice the text, it's, the servant still has the blind ignorance to say this. I, I, I love the storytelling of Jesus. It's so brilliant. The servant says to the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I mean, people lived a really long time before the flood in the Bible. If you are a student of the Old Testament or have read through the book of Genesis, it's like some of these people lived a long time. I don't know if I'd want to live that long, but, but they lived a really long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. The oldest one lived what? Near a thousand years? So he'd only need to live that lifetime 164, 164-ish times before he got this debt paid off. So then we have this concept, it's very obvious to us, the point is he had absolutely zero ability, zero opportunity, zero chance of satisfying his debt. But then we have verse 27, and this is the gospel. Out of pity, the word carries with it the idea of feeling compassion for. The king gives him his freedom and forgives the debt completely. The servant cried out for help. He cried out for mercy. And he didn't even cry out correctly. And yet he is completely forgiven. Not mostly forgiven. Not forgiven for today, but not for tomorrow. Not with strings attached. Not with some fine print that says, you owe me later. The king gave him grace. And I love this definition of grace. Grace is simply God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that's what he received. The king gave him grace. No one loves debt. You might say our nation loves debt, but no person loves debt. We don't want to owe anybody anything. We don't want others to have that kind of power over us or control over us or leverage over us. For most of us, the largest debt we could ever really owe in, in our lifetimes will probably be our homes. It'll probably be our homes, and the typical home mortgage is around 30 years. Imagine tomorrow you get a letter from the lender from your home uh, that, that states that your home has been paid in full. How would that make you feel towards the person that covered that debt? I just saw a, a young woman right up here just go like this, and and if you would like to cover my personal home loan, I have no qualms or, or concerns about you doing that favor to me. That, that would be so amazing. But imagine you purchased 5,500 homes because that's about how many 30-year mortgages the guy in the parable would have had. 
And you'd never paid a dime on any of them. And if you didn't pay today, today, then you, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, and every person who shares your blood in their bones loses everything and becomes enslaved to the lender. Do you grasp what Jesus has done for you on the cross? That's what it's illustrating. Galatians chapter two, Paul puts it this way, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, alive with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen and amen for that text. It's such a powerful truth for us to hold on to. And if you trust in the authority of God's word as, the, as a greater authority than any other religious system or the moral system that you've come up with on your own, then every single one of us, according to the word of God, owes our creator an eternity of debt. Why? Because all of us have committed an inexcusable offense against God. And our inexcusable sin is this. It's our ongoing commitment to make ourselves the center. It's to make ourselves the center, to make ourselves the ruler, to make ourselves the master, to make ourselves the solution. Here's how the famous religious philosopher Blaise Pascal put it. He would make himself his own center. And independent of my aid, of God's aid, he withdrew himself from my rule. And when he made himself equal to me by the desire of finding his happiness in himself, I gave him over to self. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Because we're tempted to think that our sin is really nothing more than a regrettable incident, a nagging problem. we're, We're so surrounded by it. We're so used to it that it's nothing more than a nuisance. And something that's so common to humanity that we say, what's the big deal? But, but what does God know about the result of our sin that we don't fully comprehend? God knows that it is the death of your soul forever. That's what he knows. That's what he fully understands. That, that sin, its result, is not death just to your body, not just to your mind. It is your soul forever. So what did God do? It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to rescue us. What he did was God the Son put on flesh. He put on your sin. He put on your death and he took off your debt so that if you put on faith in him alone, then you receive what he was owed. You will receive life instead of death right now And forevermore. And that is the good news of Jesus. Ezekiel said it this way, and I believe this is true for all of God's people for all time in chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, you'll learn to stop walking towards death, which is the walk of everyone in this world apart from Christ. 
And instead, you'll learn to walk into life. All of this realization of the weight of our sin, it's not meant to shame you today. It's not meant to shame us today. This is not some kind of despicable me theology that I'm talking about here. The point is not to shine the spotlight only on your sin or my sin. It is to shine the spotlight on what Jesus has done for you. He he did for you what you could never do for yourself. That is the grace of salvation. And the author of Hebrews says, he, Jesus Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Do you know what that means? It, It means Jesus makes it personal. And he walks with me through my sin. And he engages with me and makes me his home. Without diminishing himself, his person, his perfection. And then he pleads with the Father for me. What forgiveness, what grace, what a savior. Now friends, many of you need to stop living in the bondage of managing your own sin. Because that is the reality of probably so many within the room this morning. You've been managing your own sin, trying to control your own sin, not releasing it and living into Christ, pressing into Christ through faith, but managing your sin. It won't work. And for others, many of you need to stop living in the bondage of your own self-devised repayment plan. If I do this, if I attend that, if I serve this way, if I really compare myself to others, if I have that internal conscience that's telling me that I'm okay, then the payment will be made, I'll be all right. That's not how it works, you can't pay it off. The great news of the gospel is that you are free to receive the forgiveness Jesus offers and then choose to forgive others as you have been forgiven yourself. Why is forgiveness necessary for the people of God? Because if we are honest with our own soul, we have all been forgiven much. Let's look at the second half of the parable. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. This isn't 164,383 and a half years. This is three months of work. That's it. Three months of work. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you the exact same mercy that the other servant was asking for previously. Exact same words, except... His plea is actually realistic. I'll pay you back. Give me a quarter of the year. Give me a few months. He refused and went and put him in prison until he paid the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which he will never be able to do. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus closes this chapter 
with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I mean, I, I, in many ways, I'd rather him just keep talking about grace. That, that's great. I think we all love to hear about that. He has forgiven us. Our debt is canceled. It's paid for on the cross. We now live in the freedom of Christ through faith. God does not look at us anymore in our sin, but only through the righteousness of his son. We are saved both now and forever. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Every spiritual gift is yours in Christ Jesus. I'd rather stay right there. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm, I'm gonna close this whole teaching and bring down this hammer. It's a warning. Why is forgiveness necessary for the people of God? Because we have been forgiven much and because forgiveness is the way of his kingdom. Jesus' point is obvious, isn't it? How can people who are being discipled into the way of Jesus ever say to some other human being, you owe me, when they have been forgiven of the infinite amount they owed the Father. God forgives the inexcusable in me and in you through faith so that I might learn to forgive the inexcusable in others. The parable starts with grace and mercy. It ends with this warning. Now, does this mean that extending forgiveness is a condition of salvation? Do we lose salvation by not extending forgiveness? I get why we ask that question, but it's the wrong question. Remember, Jesus has been instructing his disciples about how they should relate to one another as part of his kingdom community. So the real question is, what kind of people are in Jesus' kingdom? And what he's saying is people in my kingdom are people who forgive. That's what they do. That's who they are. That's the result of them being changed by the gospel. The unconditional forgiveness of Jesus is meant to bear fruit. And the fruit that it bears is forgiveness. God's family forgives as they have been forgiven. Now, let's not get confused here. I'm learning that Jesus' expectation to forgive, it does not make less of the offense. So for those of you who are in the room and you're like, but you don't know what happened to me. No, I don't. And I'm not minimizing that, neither is Jesus. It does not make less of the offense. It does not pretend the offense didn't happen. It does not remove justice and accountability. It does not depend on the repentance of the person who hurt you. It does not put us in harm's way by reconnecting with someone else who is dangerous. It does not fix everything that is wrong with us. But we must all understand there is real power behind an unforgiving spirit. That's where the enemy wants to keep you. He wants to keep you trapped inside that pain. He wants to keep you in that memory. He wants to keep triggering you. It's like what Lewis Smedes wrote about the result of the unforgiving spirit within his book, The Art of Forgiving. He said, his rage has become his very being that we hold on to it and we so clamor for that control because we think it produces safety for us that it actually produces rage within us. It's like our identity in Christ gets hijacked by an identity in unforgiveness. But that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are. A few years ago, Mike Tyson, of all people, 
And Saquon Barkley, I love this, an NFL running back for the New York Giants, they were on a podcast together and Saquon said, you do me wrong, I cut ties real quick. Mike Tyson says to him, then the devil wins. Saquon says, so you're saying the devil wins because someone did me wrong and I cut ties with that person. I act like I never knew that person, so I gotta be a bigger person. Mike Tyson says, the devil wins because he changed you. So he's your master because he controls your emotions. He's not your enemy, he's your master because you're not who you used to be now. He stole that away from you. That's exactly right. And so Jesus is calling you into his way this morning. I'm gonna invite the band out and we're gonna do something that we don't often do at Woodside, but it's a very good practice for us to do. And that's to give you time and space to respond to the word of God. So I would ask that you choose to stay for the next few minutes. It won't go long, just the length of a song, but that you don't leave the room because the truth is, I think that all of us in here have some work to do with the Lord when it comes to this topic. And I think there's two responses that you might need to consider today. One is to respond by coming forward, standing up, moving your feet, coming to the front and receiving the forgiveness that Jesus has offered to you. Receive salvation. And because you finally now hopefully realize that all of those self-management strategies, they just don't work. You can't pay it off. One offense against the holy God and you're in his debt. And yet that good news is that Jesus has saved you. He's rescued you. Would you receive him? Simply come and pray to him and say, Jesus, I've tried a lot of different things. Today I'm trying you. Would you save me from my sin? Would you be my savior and Lord? And I think for many in this room, whether you're up in the balcony or down here, I think many need to respond by coming to extend forgiveness to someone who has hurt you by offering it up to Jesus and being willing to take the steps toward letting the king works at, work out who owes who. By coming forward and saying, I've held on to this for a week. I mean, it's just been Thanksgiving, maybe a few days. But maybe you've been triggered again. Well, they did this and last year they did that and five years ago it was this and 10 years ago. And, and your history book, it just, it's been, it's got a lot of chapters. And the truth is, it was also Louis Smedes who wrote, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. So are you willing to set yourself free today? That's what Jesus offers you. Let's practice the words of Jesus. We see it in the book of James, chapter one, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so as you reflect, whether you stay seated or have the courage to come and simply uh, extend that forgiveness to Jesus, extend it to the Father and say, I, I forgive, you fill in the blank. I'm releasing it to you. And walk out of this place in a freedom that maybe you have not experienced in your life. It's not yours to carry anymore. So give it to him. Give it to the one who can. 
So Father, as we open up this time of worshipful response, I pray that you would give your people through your spirit the courage to say what needs to be said, to do what needs to be done, to receive Jesus if that is where they are, to extend forgiveness that they've been holding on to, to release offenses. Give them the courage simply to come in worship and leave this place free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.